She's discussing this issue of factions inside the church and how we can think about that differently, not only for them but for us as well. What is it that can possibly unify us? And Paul argues as best as he can, the only possibility for that kind of profound unity that's more than skin deep is by understanding the power of the cross and the way it's been articulated in the gospel. So this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of God. So he adds his blessing to our reading of it. About 20 miles southwest from here, there's a congregation worshiping together right now. The pastor is Petros Yefru, and Petros is Ethiopian. Some of you may remember back in the early 90s, there was a border conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea, and Petros was in the army. He was somebody who had taken up arms against Eretrians to go and to claim what they said was their rightful land. So Petros strapped a semi-automatic uh, weapon uh, on his shoulder and can tell you stories of how he was aiming to eliminate the enemy. Along the way, and some of you may remember this because he actually spoke at our Christmas for the Nations event a handful of years ago, he met Christ in a little bit like Paul's experience, it completely changed his mindset. And he saw that he could no longer bear that weapon and aim it because the enemy wasn't the Eritrean. It was the enemy of each of our souls who was conspiring to get him to see something very different than those who were also in the war with him. So he laid down his weapon and he walked the other way and he endeavored to live for Christ and to love others in his name. If you've ever met Petros, and maybe some of you have, he's the most soft-spoken, peace-filled individual I've ever met. It's hard to imagine him with a weapon, but he'll tell you the only reason that that character exists and that he walked away was because he encountered Christ. So this, this morning, if you were to go down to People's Church, there's a, another room where Ethiopians are gathering with Eritreans. And Petros, who used to hold a weapon to those very people, now holds the word of God before them, confesses his sins and says, brothers and sisters, we are one because of Christ. And that probably sounds a bit inspiring, but not as much so if you were actually Ethiopian or Eritrean, right? 
because you would understand the profound conflict that has existed between those nations for many, many years. And for those of us who maybe grow a little bit jaded as we talk about the beautiful, messy bride of Christ, and we think about divisions in the church, it's kind of messy. So it's so refreshing to look and to see how Christ does come and change profoundly, not just an individual, but people groups who once were divided, now holding hands together, sharing communion and worship. It's a beautiful thing. I give you permission some Sunday to go worship with the Ethiopian Eritrean Fellowship Congregation down there. And frankly, I'm going to try to get Petros from here to come and preach and share his story because he'll tell you more details than I possibly could. Petros Yefru then is holding hands with those who were once his enemies, and the gospel changed him profoundly. And Paul felt exactly the same way. You remember... In Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to persecute people who love the name of Christ. And that's when he encountered Christ. And now his one mission in life is to bring people together under that banner. Those who used to be enemies, not only with God, but with each other, can now worship and work and, and walk together. Only because of what Christ himself has done. And Paul experienced that and so profoundly that he's willing to lay his life down for that. So when he came to Corinth and spent a year and a half with them, you can imagine this is a lot of what he was talking about. Three years later, when he pens this letter back to the church and learns there are factions in there, you can understand why his heart is broken. Because he knows Christ came to divide those barriers. And now, in the congregation, they're beginning to spring up again. So when he writes to them, it's with, with, a, with a measure of, of urgency, he says, this cannot be the case. And so what he does here is give them a vision for unity. He talks in this passage about what gets in the way. And then he talks about how the gospel provides a way for us to unite. The unifying power of the gospel. Let's look first at this vision of unity that Paul has for us. And, and really to kind of get there, we have to look a little bit farther back. I don't have this on the PowerPoint but if you remember from last week, there were two kind of main points. There's a faithful God, and we have a high calling. And if you look back in verse 2, you'll see that part of his vision for unity, he's already begun unpacking in the introduction part of this. This is really just a part of the high calling back in verse 2. He says, if you remember, this is a letter to the church of God in Corinth. And how many churches were in Corinth like Physically, there were a handful of house churches getting together, but he's writing to the one church. He sees them as one church. So part of the, the unpacking of what it means to be the people of God, the called out ones, is this vision for this one church gathered together in this city. That's part of the high calling. In fact, in verse 9, we saw as well, the verse right before verse 10, the argument that God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's faithful. What is fellowship? It's, it's koinonia. It's communion with each other. It's, it's not just dressing. It goes deep. And he has called us part of the high calling. If you're somebody who says, I'm a part of the church, part of your calling is to live that out in fellowship with Christ, which is by definition fellowship with 
those who are members of the body of Christ. That is part of our high calling. We're sanctified, set apart, holy to do what? And part of it is to, is to love each other, to be in fellowship with each other, deep, abiding, long, beautiful fellowship. And so when Paul turns to the appeal in the letter, this is why he does it. His vision for unity, he begins in verse 10 by saying, I appeal to you, brothers. And it's interesting because his appeal here is on family, question mark, question mark, brothers. I think that's supposed to be an arrow, but it didn't translate properly. He's giving it a family appeal. He's using the term brothers. You know, family over everything. I think that's something that rappers say this day. I, I, I don't know. I've heard it a little bit recently, but this is the idea. Paul says, you have to think differently about the other. The other is your brother and your sister. There's family language that he's incorporating. And Paul, who's written 13 books of the New Testament, here in the book of 1 Corinthians, uses the term brothers. That's, it's used 40% of all of his writing is here in this book. Because he wants us to see that we're family. Look, does that mean it's easy? You know what family's like. Remember, beautiful, messy bride of Christ? It's not, it's not always pretty, but you have a commitment, don't you, in family to work it out as best as you possibly can. There's, there's a commonality, a, a sharedness that he's appealing to. Think about this other person when you have factions. is really, it's, it's your brother. That's his appeal. And his appeal, as you see there as well, is not only to being brother and sister in Christ, but also the appeal in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have a common Lord and Savior. You're brothers, and the reason you're brothers is because your common ground is Christ. He's going to unpack what that means a lot in the days ahead, and even towards the end of this section of verses. But from the beginning, he's reminding them, this is your common ground. He's, he's giving them a foundation for thinking about what unity can look like, why it's even possible, and how we ought to be moving toward that end. In John chapter 17, I don't have this here, but this is a pretty powerful prayer that Christ offers. In John 17, it's called his high priestly prayer. Some of you would be familiar with this, but listen to the language here that Jesus, who is praying for his disciples just before he's going to be arrested, prays. In verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. He's praying about his disciples who are gathered around him at that point. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. If you're a believer today, then Jesus has you in mind when he's praying this prayer. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So his prayer is for a oneness that mirrors Trinitarian fellowship. It's, it's totally mind-blowing, to be honest with you. I mean, the, the Trinity from all eternity in, in perfect fellowship and harmony, this is what he's praying for, those who will believe in his message. That's you if you've embraced Christ. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why? Why is it important that Jesus wants his, his church to be unified? Because this is evangelistic, right? If you're familiar with church lingo, it's a testimony to the watching world that he is really who he says he is. That's what's at stake here. And Jesus, when he looks down the annals of history and he's, he's looking at all of those individual outposts of expressions of his body, one of them being Redeemer Church starting 10 years ago. He's praying for us. Jesus, Jesus, we're on his lips. Way back here when he's praying that they might be one so that we can be a testimony to the world around us. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's what's at stake. When Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who prayed for you, Corinthians, and you, Redeemerites, that you would be unified so that the world, and I know most of us are thinking, does the world really care what's going on here? Unfortunately, because of the messy part of the bride of Christ, the church oftentimes is a place where we're most divided. And Paul here says, that cannot be. I am appealing to you, brothers, sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so there may be no divisions among you and you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That is a profound vision for the unity of the church. If you read commentators, the, the thrust and the force of this is harmony. Paul is, is desperate for the church to be harmonious. And it's not even just talking about that church or this church. He's looking at the problems inside one local congregation. It cannot be that way. He gives us a vision for unity just as Christ has. But have you noticed things get in the way of that? I think most of us think that is awesome. This would be incredible. Yeah. So what goes wrong? And there's a lot of answers to that. But Paul starts talking about some of these. And he does that, as you've already seen, in verse 11. He starts unpacking it. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So one of the things that happens, what gets in the way? Quarrels. Squabbling. Fighting. It kind of sounds like family, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of on point here. I don't know if you've got a family with multiple individuals. You tend to have quarrels along the way. And there's a lot of reasons why this happens, but, you know, James, the, the brother of Jesus, writes a little bit about this in his book, too. Uh, listen to what James chapter 4 says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You're curious? He says, here's what it is. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel. And fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Just like Jesus, James is driving it down. Remember the Sermon on the Mount to the motive level? There's something wrong with your motives. And here's what it is. You're selfish. And remember how we were talking about immaturity being a key issue in the church? 
If any of you have young children who are not mature, do they think only about themselves? Have you noticed that? The word my and me, I know this is one of the first words besides mama, papa, or whatever. You learn, right? Mine. Mine. It's mine. And Paul says, unfortunately, when I look at you, church, you look like a toddler. You're very immature, and the reason you're fighting is because your mentality is not, how do I give myself to someone else, but how do I get what I want? How is what you're doing infringing upon my either preferences, my privileges, or even my rights? If you shift that mentality, if you're mature, if you're an adult, well, you're still struggling with some selfishness, I get it, but your mentality is slightly different. Hopefully you've grown. And every now and then you throw a fit like a kid. I get it. But if you've grown up, now you're thinking beyond yourself and able to give something you couldn't before. Why? Because you're rooted and grounded in a sense of identity that's very different than the unstable child. And Paul says if you're a church that's immature, we've got to start right back at the beginning and remind you why you're even a church to begin with. It's because of what Christ has done. But here you are quarreling, fighting about things that are silly in nature, just like a little child trying to play with his toy. My toy. My way. That's quarrels. And part of the quarrels is he sees uh, taking root in the church, these factions that are developing. If you read my write-up before, I called it leader veneration. Patent penting I put on my little uh, write-up too. Don't believe the word exists until now. Combination. They're venerating, lifting up high leaders. And this is easy to do. You attach to somebody who maybe has a style that you like or, or content and somebody who's a leader who's out there saying and doing things that you want to attach to and identify with and you're like, I am a follower of Paul. That's what they're literally saying in this passage. So, you know, Chloe, these people are telling me that one of you says, I follow Paul. And, and another, I follow Apollos or Cephas who is Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. They're venerating leaders. We all like to do that. Latch on to some, someone who maybe articulates a position that we have in, in a particular sort of way, and you say, I follow this individual. And it doesn't unpack for us what those mean. You can kind of guess, I follow Paul. Paul was a spiritual father to many of these people. And some people are saying, well, if we're going to start lining up with teams here, you know, I like that guy better than this guy because he led me to the Lord or whatever the case may be. And I like his style. You know, Paul's kind of brash and he's a black and white sort of person. He's not going to kind of yeah, be wishy-washy about things. He's going to say, hey, look, you're immature people. Sorry. Grow up. And Apollos, who knows? I don't know, but he was apparently quite intellectual, extremely articulate. This could be the thinking individual, like, wow, he's got really profound thoughts. And when he speaks about things, it's very interesting. It's not kind of the little fluffy stuff that some of these other people do. It's got depth to it. And Cephas, Peter, since there was a mix of people in this congregation, many people would say, well, these are probably Jewish Christians, right? People who had a Judaic, uh, were committed to... To, to being Jewish, 
And Peter was kind of identified with Jewish Christianity, that church in Jerusalem as well, and they say, that's where we stand. And it's a little confusing because another one, he says, I follow Christ. You're like, well, who could argue with that? That's kind of where you're headed, right? Why is Paul calling that out? I don't know. The only, the only thing I could think of is it's possible that sometimes people say, I don't care about human leaders. I just follow Jesus. And the problem with that is God's given human leaders to the church. So it could be that they're actually leader deveneration. I, I mean, like they're not honoring people as much as they need to because it's like, ah, it's all about Christ. You know, people like that, hyper-spiritual you know, why, why are you depressed ever? Nah, it's all about Christ. He's good. He's won everything. And there was an over-realized eschatology that this church was struggling with, which makes me think this could be the case. It says everything's good. I'm not going to pretend anything is hard. And Paul says that sounds great, but it's not really dealing with the problems that you have. He grounds the gospel in something so fleshy and earthy. Yeah, we think about heaven, and you set your hearts on those things, but we're living now. And the gospel isn't just out there. It's right here. And it's not just spiritual. It's physical. So if we're moving towards unity, it's not just aligning some sort of spinning systems of theology out there. It means what do we care about on a daily basis? You know, one of the reasons this generation is deconstructing their Christian faith is because they look at the church and say, you don't care about justice at all as far as I can tell. And so there's conversation about social justice and people will say things like, Ooh, we're going to let, let that slide by the side because they're going over into un, you know, unwanted territory as well. But the Bible doesn't give us the opportunity to set justice aside. It's not an add-on to the gospel. It's the very central part of it where Jesus says, I've come to make things right between me and God and you and each other. You don't have an option. But isn't it easy and nice to have categories and labels? It's maybe not just leader veneration, but another patent pending term, label veneration. You know, I, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Reformed theology. I follow the Democratic Party. I follow, I don't care what it is. It's an easy way for us to get a label and say, I follow technology, maybe. I don't know. This was supposed to call that one out too. Don't, don't do it. It's going to fail you at some point. I guarantee it. But it's really nice to package that together and say this is what my central category becomes. And it's not to minimize the value of aligning your ideas with, with certain expressions of it. It's that when that becomes idolatrous because your first leading thought is it doesn't line up to that label and it's anything besides Christ... Look out. You are going to create factions and divisions. And you'll lose your testimony to the world around you. You know, Paul in the Gospels really appreciate the beauty of the diversity of the body of Christ, but not at the extent, not the expense of aligning under the most beautiful thing of all, the one who has united us under himself. And that's, what he starts talking about here, too, there's no room for celebrity pastors and authors and denominational haughtiness. It's, there's no room for it if you start remembering the gospel. And that's where Paul drives us. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. How does the gospel unify? Well, let me suggest that Paul's answer to that is Christocentric and cruciform. Christocentric in that he is completely consumed with what Christ has done. He's centered on Christ. And cruciform, because it happened on the cross, that's what cruciform means, cross-shaped. And then we, who align under Christ, live a Christocentric, cruciform life. And as we begin doing that, then we can move towards the unity that Paul has called us to move toward. Christocentric and cruciform. And Paul says that by using logic. He says, is Christ divided? And he knows the answer is no. You can't divide Christ up. It's not like he's a part. He's a whole. He himself is, is unified. You cannot begin dividing him up. Were you crucified? Was I crucified for you? Was Paul crucified? No. There's only one who was crucified. The man who was also divine. Christ. Were you baptized into my name? He did some, some baptisms, but he wasn't baptizing into the name of Paul. He's baptizing in the name of Christ. That picture of, of what Christ has done in baptism. He's the one who's forgiven. He's the one who shed his blood and paid the price in full. He's the one who raised from the dead to give you new life. Not Paul, not Apollos, not any political system ever, anywhere, no matter how perfect we might think it might be. No ideology, no book, no spiritual guru, only Christ. He's the one who died. He's the one who raised again. Therefore, brothers, you see that the gospel is the only hope for this kind of unity. I mean, Paul is so enamored with this concept, he writes about it elsewhere. Listen to this language in Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, union with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion. He's kind of setting a low bar here. If you have a shred of it at all, then make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You see the pathway he's putting out here? Stop being a little child. Stop thinking about what you're getting. Stop thinking about me. The emptying of yourself on behalf of another that's the pathway toward unity. People who are in the minority in the United States understand this way more than people in the majority because they're forced by definition to empty themselves out all the time. And Jesus says here, that's something you've got to do if you want to be Christocentric and cruciform. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Your first thought isn't, how does it benefit me? You know, that's not a human way to think, is it? This is not human wisdom. This is something only God can do. I know for me, my first thought on all kinds of things is, how does it benefit me? Cancellation of student debt. Hmm. 
regardless of whether philosophically I'm for it or against it, how does it benefit me? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Well, maybe it's benefiting somebody else. And that, that gives me joy, even if I didn't get it myself. I don't know what this looks like for you. But I know that Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is the calling, the high calling you have. Your attitude, the way you think about everything around you ought to be just like Jesus. And then what does he do? He says, here's a sample of what that looks like. This is what it looks like. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and made himself nothing. You think you have rights? You got constitutional rights, right? Jesus had every right in the world, and he laid them all down. That's what he did. He said, I have every right as the God who created everything and the only person who is completely perfect to demand something from you. And instead, on the cross, what he does, he takes all your sin and says, I'm going to be treated like you instead. He lays down all of his rights, all of his privileges. He's the only person who really deserved what he, he should have gotten and didn't deserve what he did get. That's the gospel. That's why Paul says, if you have any hope for unity, let me take you back to the very beginning in the cross of Christ. That's the only hope there is for you guys getting rid of your petty factions and your immaturity is if you remember there what Christ has done. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. It's a picture in John 13 when they're you know, kind of quibbling, fighting about what does it look like to be great in the kingdom? And Jesus says, I'll show you. And he bends the knee, takes the lowest form of the servant in the room, begins washing people's smelly feet. He says, that's what it looks like in the kingdom of God. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That was the pathway for him. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What a cosmic statement here. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an evangelistic statement. He's calling people to himself. And he's doing it through humble service and laying down his rights and privileges because he knows the only thing that matters is fellowship with God. That's what matters most. And because that matters most, this is what he's going to do, lay down his life. And then he says, you're supposed to be the same way. You know, isn't this what we do in marriage when you look at each other and say, hey, babe, I love you through good and bad. You're like, ah, everybody's happy and excited and half marriages end in divorce. Why? At least part of it is because we are demanding something of another person that they could probably never, ever give. That's not all of it. I know there's more to it than that. And that's the same in the church, too. And the one who stands condemned then is not you, if you've experienced that, but me, because I'm doing it on a much subtler level that you can't see with my own wife. Demanding things. Am I laying my life? What's the picture of marriage? Lay husbands, 
Love your wife like Christ loved the church. The bride of Christ. How did Christ love the church? Died for them. But, 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 no, no, no buts here. Do it. And when you get into these debates about, oh, well, you know, even in terms of serving one another and patriarchs and whatever, like, if you're laying your life down for your bride, it's pretty easy for her to submit to you. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> it's going to happen because you're trying to outsubmit each other. I mean, you can't make decisions on where to go to dinner if you do that. Where do you want? I don't know where do you want to go. Where do you want to go? You got to make progress. I get it, but the spirit of the attitude underneath it is: How can I lay down my life for you? Do you think people want to be loved by somebody like that? And Jesus says that's how we ought to look at everybody around us who we call brother and sister. How can I lay my? I know there's boundaries. I get it. You can't be Christ. You're not designed to be Christ. But we are in fellowship with each other, and we are probably being called to lay our preferences down a little bit more than we are because that is a beautiful thing. And when we enter into somebody else's reality, it does create unity. At least that's what Paul believes. Because the cross is the greatest leveling ground in history. <laughs> it just is. If you really understand the power of the cross, what's the message? We're all the same. We're all sinners we're all desperately in need of a Savior. And the only hope any of us have of that Savior entering our lives is if he takes the initiative and shows us that we're all desperately in need of a Savior. And if you latch on to that reality then, Paul tells us you got to look back at that cross, not just at your first glance, but every morning when you wake up and every afternoon when you're taking your afternoon tea and every morning when you're going to bed because you'll stop forgetting about the leveling cross, nature of the cross, and start comparing and finding ways you can align and become better than subtly another person. There's no room for that in the church. There ought to be no room for that in the church. The, the cross is the great leveling ground. There's no human explanation for this. It's a divine work. We don't worship our right theology or even our right behavior, but our sinless Savior. That's who we worship. That's it. That's, that's, that's the unifying capacity and vision of the gospel. The cross bids us to look at the right place, and the only starting place for any hope of combating divisiveness is the cross. So we look to him first and repeatedly, and only when the cross, the, the, what happened on the cross begins to do its work as the Holy Spirit refines and convicts and illuminates and purifies can we really start looking at others properly. And begin get, being a testimony. Can you imagine? I, it's hard for me to imagine the Cincinnati Enquirer. Wow, look at that church. We don't get it. It can only be explained by something that's not human. You're, 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 if you're a fan of the Cincinnati Bengals and you gather with everybody else, it's a human explanation. I follow the Bengals. And that's, that's okay, right? It's not your ultimate identity, and I get it. You align with people, and it's awesome, but once you leave the stadium and you go to work or whatever, are they gathering here to worship with each other together? 
And sometimes that's a, that's, a, that's a more beautiful picture than the bride of Christ it can be, but it should never be that way. They don't have the power of the cross. And to the extent that we're not experiencing it, then we have to look inside and say, what about me? Do I understand this leveling ground? Am I looking to Jesus again and again and not at the people around me? As we've said before, Jesus is the great shepherd. We're just messy people who smell like sheep. And if you look at each other and start, you're following Christ, you're looking at Christ, you start looking around and you're like, these sheep look like a mess. And pretty soon you start saying, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian? I'm out. Christ defines what it means to be a follower, not the people around you. But because of that high calling then, that should never be the case, and yet we see it is. So let's repent of it. And let's, let's do this kind of thing as well and say, Christ, not my will be done, but yours. And the scary thing is, if you mean it, Look out, because he's serious about that. And there's a winnowing day coming, and it's going to start right there with you in your own heart. Start ripping and rooting out all of the ways that you look at things that are not aligning with the gospel. And one of the beauties, I think, of entering into even cross-cultural relationships is we have so many blinders. We tend to take our own cultural and just have the USDA stamp of approval. Gospel. And we run up against somebody who's got a different way of thinking. You've got to do some soul searching here too. And there's a great opportunity for unity that comes from that. It's way more beautiful than naturally aligning with everybody who already believes the same thing you do. And this unity of spirit and purpose then is a testimony to the world around us. It's not just a nice sounding concept, however, that's work free. Jesus bled for it. <laughs> and he says this crazy thing. Now it's your turn to take up your cross and follow me as well. It's not easy. It's not just because we gather together and say, yeah, let's be unified. It's hard work. It's difficult to say, I'm sorry. It's hard to say and really listen and say, help me understand. Without first wanting to say, I'm going to help you understand. You didn't even ask, but let me tell you how it is. And the gospel won't have room for that. Well, the gospel's gracious, right? Christ is gracious. He gives us patience. But we're going to end up with factions, not just around the world, but even in our own little fellowship, if we don't keep the gospel central like this. That's what we need to pray for. It's going to be hard, but it's not hopeless. And I have great hope for that, but it's only if we understand the unifying power of the gospel. Father, I pray for my own heart that is quick to put up walls and, and boundaries and barriers and categories and labels and venerate human leaders or maybe even devalue other thoughts. We pray, perhaps some of us today are willing to pray, God, would you come in and do some work inside, clean house a bit so that we can have the same attitude, the same mindset of Christ who, though he was God, emptied himself and said, I am putting it aside so that people who don't know you can glorify you. And those who have heard that, who call on your name today, Father, we plead with you to start doing the work in us so that it will spill over to others and it will outserve one another. Not, not where the badge of humility is as a source of pride, but genuinely humbling ourselves 
and serving the other. And that our categories of what the other means would even be different. Brothers and sisters, Father, we desperately need, this is a divine work. We cannot make it happen without you. So Holy Spirit, come and do your work. May we know the unifying power of the gospel in the days ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you a, a, a chance to, to share. We, we do this.